Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! Hi, this is David. And this is Shlomi. And you've tuned into Left to Our Own Devices, the product security podcast. All right, so we're going to start now. Our guest today is Helen Negring, the Chief Cybersecurity Officer for Siemens USA and the America's CISO for Siemens Mobility, overseeing IT, OT security, and product security strategy and operations in the critical infrastructure and transportation sectors. She sits on the Siemens Product Security Board in the Data Privacy Working Group and is passionate about ensuring the utmost security in Siemens products. Helen has an educational background in digital forensics and psychology. Previously, she has served as a head of cybersecurity incident response, product security officer, a forensic investigator, and a DevSecOps lead. Previous to her time with Siemens, she worked in IT and product security in the aerospace industry. Wow, Helen, you must be a busy lady. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And uh, yes, especially in a global company, the work is never truly done. Uh, No matter what time of day it is here, somebody is always working on addressing the security threat. Excellent. So maybe we can start with, uh, if you could share with our listeners your path from digital forensics and psychology, which is a very interesting area in itself, to the position of chief cybersecurity officer for one of the largest multinational conglomerates in the world. Well, it's, it's actually interesting. I was working in tech before I even got my degree. So for me, and I think for a lot of people early on before cybersecurity was a thing or information security had been developed, you were working with computers, right? And your job was to make sure things didn't go down make sure that private data stayed private, and make sure that nobody can tamper with your environment. And honestly, that's security, but we didn't have a word for it then. It was just a part of being a systems administrator, being in IT. And there was a point when I was going around gaining some dev skills, you know, working in these environments when a human resources friend of mine said, eventually, this is going to have a name. It's going to be defined in a very strict environment like everything else. And you're going to have to get a degree in this, what you do. I pushed back with her a little bit. I said, no, you know, this environment, tech is all about your collection of skills, your ability. It's not about you going to a formal education. And she said, "That's, that's how it is right now but it will change. And you need to make sure you're ready for that change. So when I first started to go to school and working full-time, I studied computer science and engineering like everybody else. And I found myself saying, well, really, what's the hardest part about my job? And what are the pieces that I use the most? Well, the pieces I use the most involve people, right? 
teaching people how to use their technology, teaching people how to behave safely on the internet, looking at different ways to help people. That's not what I'm getting in my engineering classes. In my engineering classes, I'm getting a little bit of everything I do every day for my job. What are the classes I can take to match those puzzle pieces? And I started to study psychology. And at the end of that, a degree opened up called digital forensics. Mm. I said, oh, that seems interesting, right? So I decided to study forensics. And if you think about it, both psychology and digital forensics involve understanding patterns, whether it's human behavior or patterns of, a, of computer behavior. And it helps you grasp the two of them, the nuances of cybersecurity the human component behind the digital threat, but also you get a deep dive knowledge of the behavior of your computer itself. And over time, that helped me with my job at Siemens, where our global approach was to truly understand the behavior of both humans, threat actors, and our products in their natural environment so that we understood how to protect them. So my forensics helped me learn how behind digital actions and the psychology helped me learn why. And both gave me a, I think, more comprehensive view of of the challenges we face. I never thought of that before, that how important psychology can be actually in cybersecurity. As you mentioned, just, you know, understanding maybe what the threat actors are looking for, what is in their mind, what their path is in order to, you know, to get to the point where they want to hack into a system or into a product or device. What's their motivation? I'm curious about something. Uh, Most people who hear about cyber threats in the news uh, media are focused on the big headlines like ransomware attacks or how generative AI might create security issues. As you just mentioned, people play uh, a major part in it. And and that's actually the biggest threat as well. And I know you talk about it a lot, but can you elaborate on that, on your perspective in that uh, area? So there's been studies, you know, it depends on the study you read, somewhere between 40 and 50% of cybersecurity incidents are related or traced back to human error. And it can be intentional or accidental. It can be, you know, as innocent as a person clicking on something they shouldn't, or as serious as an insider who has been coerced or uh, in somehow manipulated by another party in order to get data from your environment. And it, it really comes back down to those people. While technology poses its challenges, it still needs that human to interact with that technology, both on the offensive and the defensive perspective. So we find a lot of our time is educating and fostering a culture of cyber awareness. It is as important as having advanced technological measures deployed in your environment. It's the same concept of, you know, you talk to people and they say, I have a firewall and I'm fine. But then you actually go and you look at their firewall and you find that it's not configured correctly. You'll find a lot of people saying, I have a cybersecurity training program and so we're fine. But that program may be insufficient or really not uh, penetrating into their needs as a company. You really need to make sure that your 
you have a robust security posture on your technological defenses, but also in those training programs. You really want to make every person in your organization feel like they are a champion of cybersecurity. Like it's their responsibility to keep the organization safe. Very interesting. You recently participated in an event that I really, really wish I would have been at because <laughs> it sounds incredible. It's the nation's largest unclassified cyber exercise event called CyberShield 2023. So can you share some of your takeaways from that event and its focus on the protection of U.S. railroad infrastructure? Definitely. And, and I will say I am grateful to have been invited. This is all about what public private partnership means to me. The government wants to, rightly so, have a cybersecurity exercise around something in critical infrastructure. That's fantastic. But to do that, they need to partner with the vendors and the operators in that critical infrastructure space. In the U.S., the critical infrastructure is not solely owned by the government. There's a lot of companies that are involved in this ecosystem. And so they reached out to us, and we were the first vendor involved in this way, to help them come up with a realistic scenario, to help them understand what components work in this environment, and for them to share some of their intelligence with us so that we could understand what the the threat to this ecosystem is. And with rail I think it's the overlooked ecosystem. Uh, we, especially in the U.S., tend to think of trains as old time. You know, it's not it's not what we do. You know, it's it's not something that every city has access to every day. And so it doesn't really get a lot of the thought. But in reality, we move a lot of freight this way, and we move a lot of people by train every day. And so a train, if you think of it, is a data center on wheels, and it is connected at points all along its path. And we are given the responsibility with our customers, the railway operators, the responsibility of making sure that that is always a safe environment. And we do this with these public-private partnerships, with private enterprise like Siemens, partnering with the federal government to ensure that this ecosystem is defended, that we have proactive measures rather than reactive, and that we have a plan so that we can have a robust infrastructure. That's interesting also because I think when you think of attacks on trains, historically they have been more physical attacks and less Mm -hmm. cyber attacks. Like the sarin attack, I think it was in Tokyo and, you know, and other, other attacks that have taken place over the years. So it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, if a hacker would get in and change tracks or, I mean, you see it in the movies, right? <laughs> but, but I don't know. I haven't seen any, maybe, maybe there have been attacks that I, that we haven't heard of, but maybe the governments didn't want us to know. But, uh, yeah, I think mostly we've seen physical and definitely I'm sure that hackers are trying or will be trying to take control of uh, the railways. Certainly. And it's something we plan for. It's something that, yes, physical attacks are more likely, but uh, you still need to be prepared because it is a, as I said, a data center on wheels. 
It has a lot of technology involved to get a train from point A to point B and to make sure that those passengers are entertained and safe and temperature controlled and that the speed of the train is going exactly correctly. And so you have to make sure that there are layers of defense in place to ensure that safety is never impacted. So when we talk about cybersecurity, uh, we often talk about this idea of the cyber poverty line, right? Where, where some larger organizations like Siemens are able to implement essential cyber measures. But then on the other side, you have smaller and mid-sized companies that are unable to do so due to budget or, or other constraints. So with cyber becoming more and more of a global imperative, how do you think we can address the, the risks posed by this divide, et cetera? 100%, I hear you. This cyber poverty line you mentioned is a genuine concern. While conglomerates like Siemens can harness extensive resources, smaller entities can't. But the cyber threat doesn't discriminate based on size. And this becomes more of a topic when we're talking about supply chain security. These smaller companies might be our vendors. And as there's more and more legislation where we have government entities trying to get ahead of the cybersecurity threat, uh, it is harder and harder for smaller companies to meet that need. I've spoken to smaller companies and I've heard things like, well, the fine for this is going to be less than the implementation, the cost to implement these uh, measures. So we're just going to take the fine. And, and when you have to make that kind of effort, that kind of decision, it's bad for the entire ecosystem. So uh, we do a lot of advocacy with uh, government entities, with work groups, so that we can say, hey, here's the perspective of business on this upcoming legislation. And what I like to do is at conferences or events where I can, I talk to smaller customers and vendors and I say, what are your pain points and how can we advocate for your needs so that you can stay safe and stay in business? Is it advocating for a grant or is it advocating for a longer timeline for implementation? Is there something we can do to help you make a plan to increase your maturity. We'll sit down with one of our project managers and look at create a, a secure supplier management plan so we can help you know what milestones will give you the most ROI and maybe you can break this into smaller pieces. So I, I like to have these conversations and I like to take away all of those learnings and then bring it to the areas where I'm given a voice, where I'm able to speak to politicians or to provide feedback on legislation so that uh, it's not just me speaking as a person from a giant conglomerate. It is me speaking with the voice of all of these smaller entities and taking their pain and making it public. My public-private partnership can be a crucial tool in this way in ensuring smaller entities have access to top-tier cybersecurity resources. Besides that, I also promote affordable security tools, and making smart choices when it comes to open source so that everybody has access to something that they can do to increase their security posture. 
maybe I'll just ask a follow-up question on that. So as a company, Siemens is creating a lot of products and devices as well. And so you're integrating many different components. Some of them are coming, I, I can assume, from component manufacturers who may be in in the in Asia Pacific region, or maybe in Germany, or other parts of the world in the United States, and they might be a, much smaller than than Siemens, obviously, and they don't have the resources. So, and then you need to know what's inside of those components in order that you can can then certify them as cyber safe. So it, it almost means that the same situation that you're advocating for companies, let's say outside of your direct ecosystem, might be also part of your ecosystem. And that you're actually helping them as well. Certainly. Yes. And we do work with our vendors to generate things like S-bonds so that we understand what's in their product or to perform pen testing. Maybe they have not been able to afford penetration testing. It's quite expensive. But maybe we can perform those tests and give them an idea of what we find in their products so that we can do this together and they can go ahead and remediate those findings. And that levels that particular component's suitability for anybody who may use it. You know, we always talk about shifting left in our own development arena, but this is actually shifting left all the way you know, down the supply chain. So on that note, maybe, um, and this is a pretty open question, I don't know if you want to you know, keep it to product security or just cybersecurity in general, but can you talk about what trends you're seeing in cybersecurity? I think I mentioned it before we got started. People are talking about AI a lot, but one of the biggest things I'm asked to speak to is supply chain security. I have every event, every podcast, every, with the exception of this one, every conference, Everybody I've spoken to, the thing they want to talk about is supply chain security. It is scary. I think it is a realization that for a long time, a lot of companies have not known what risks they're accepting when they bring vendors into their ecosystem. And that has become more and more apparent. Governments are talking about it. President Biden's executive order. (laughs) Right. It is suddenly on everyone's radar. So uh, that has definitely become a a trend that we can't stop talking about. I would say overall, as our digital landscape becomes more intricate, so do threats. So we're talking about AI, we're talking about evolving ransomware, but we're, we're having so many conversations on supply chain security because it is the elephant in the room and we're all trying to find the way to eat it. I wonder if that has something to do with the new compliance regulations also coming out of the US, also coming out of Europe, you know, that are applying to the end products and and because of that you have to make sure that your supply chain security is solid uh, in order to comply with those regulations. Certainly, the regulations are definitely driving this conversation uh, as are some of the incidents that we've had the conversations started with the solar winds incident and then they kind of died down and the executive order and the CRA definitely brought those conversations back and now it became away from talk and into something tangible. Another trend, something that has continued um, to be discussed is the zero trust security model and everybody is rolling out zero trust. Everybody has a different idea of what that looks like. Yeah. So there's a lot of conversations around zero trust and how uh, not only to bring it into the IT environment, 
how do you make it work in OT environments? How do you make it work in factories? And the last threat that's still being talked about is the post-quantum computing era. So the, the threats in the new quantum-resistant algorithms and how we are going to adapt them to, as an industry. I think each one of those uh, can can fill out a, a whole episode of, of the podcast. I agree. And, and it is fascinating. We talk about supply chain a lot and quantum is a whole different ballgame. But I, I, I'm curious what you think about uh, product security specifically, which is the topic that most of our listeners are involved in. Um, so, so as we know, product security is a relatively new practice as compared to IT security, of course. What do you think is driving the, the need for heightened product security specifically these days? Is it just the supply chain issue that you mentioned? Is it other things? So I would even argue that product security is not a rel- is not new if you know where to look. Uh, I Siemens has had a program for over 10 years, or I guess now 13, almost 14 years, specifically dedicated to product security. Even when, I, when you were reading my background, I, I led product security related incident response in the US, right? It's It's been there, but it hasn't been given the global attention. And I think that the global attention is coming from the realization that these products make up the backbone of our economy, of our way of living. You know, our world is so interconnected that these products are vital to our continuing to exist as we are accustomed to doing so. Product security is the lights that I have on right now. It's the MRI machine that I was in last week. And it's the systems that allow for automation in our factories. It's the train that gets goods from one side of your country to the other. And it's so critical that I think the conversation's happening more because people have realized if something were to happen, it would be a big deal. It would impact all of us in our day-to-day life. It it wouldn't just be a work outage. It's not just about protecting personal data and privacy. It's about protecting that critical infrastructure. And it's the regulatory environment that's driving this conversation, but also I think just an industry-wide conversation on how it's not just a good-to-have thing, but it's a necessity. Um, product security, in some instances, can be the difference between life and death. So it has to be taken seriously. You know, when Shlomi and I first joined up together, he said something that I'll never forget, which is, I didn't want to just go and protect a Netflix server I wanted to protect, you know, the the infrastructure, the devices that people need to keep them alive, the the, the vehicles. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with Netflix, and <laughs> don't get me wrong. I mean, it's it's very much it's excellent for entertainment, but it's um yeah, it, it's it's a different feeling. And you know, I guess that that almost leads us in very well to the next question I had, which was on the personal side. What excites you about working in cybersecurity? I enjoy that I've never had the same day twice. It's been 20 years and I've still never had the same day twice. Um, There's always something to learn. There's always something um, new in my day. And now in my 
position as a CC. So I get to do a lot to help others grow in this organization and in this industry. I get to mentor. I get to, um, you know, create programs to help people get the training that they need and to bring the excitement of our industry to the next generation. That's exciting in its own way. So there's, there's that part of it. And then there's the, the part of the stuff we make matters. It's one of the reasons why I, I like being with Siemens. I don't get to just have a set, a, a part of making one thing that's important safer. I get a part of making thousands of things that are important safer. And I don't know if I'd be able to do that anywhere else. And it may, I feel like in my own way, I get to do something that'll make a difference to a lot of people. That's incredible. You certainly are. So that's actually a perfect segue to, to my next question, because you touched on the subject of, of um, helping people grow and, and learn. And as, as we all know, the demand for cybersecurity professionals is only growing by the day. And the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates that by 2030, security roles will grow by more than 30%, which is incredible. So do you have to, to, to have a background in cybersecurity uh, in your mind to enter into this field? What type of roles are, are in high demand according to your experience? I will start by saying it's not, you don't need a background in cybersecurity to get a cybersecurity job. Traditionally, cybersecurity was the thing you'd got, or information security or whatever form of security you were in, was the thing you got into after you knew something else. Maybe you were a really good product developer and you wanted to learn how to make your product safer. That's, that's how I got into product security, right? Maybe you're a sysadmin and you have an incident or you have uh you you want to make sure your environment isn't compromised you got then you started to learn more about what's it was information security right uh you knew something and you wanted to protect it and that is how you got into cyber still that is a path to cyber if you want you can go and you can study forensics or cybersecurity or computer science and get, get into cybersecurity, and that's fine too. You can get a bunch of certifications, and that's fine too. But y- you don't need it. And I would say that there's that barrier that people think I can't do cybersecurity because I've never studied it. And, and that barrier doesn't need to be there. It's uh, that fear doesn't need to be there. We can teach you how to protect the thing you already know. I would say that we need we need people in every role. So what types of roles are in high demand? All of them. It's from threat intelligence to governments and compliance. I think um, a lot of the people that I meet that are just graduating, they want to be a pen tester. They want to do red teaming. It's fun. I agree. You know what? I had so much fun as a pen tester. It was amazing. But it's not all we need. There are hundreds of different types of roles in cybersecurity. And anybody who's interested has a role that would fit them. 
Now, the skills that I find important are problem solving, being a self-directed learner, being curious. This is a, it's the number one thing I actually look for is curiosity. It is a job where you're going to have to learn something new constantly. Technology changes constantly. So you have to actually like to learn. You have to actually have that inside of you that says, I would like to go and figure out what's going on there. That looks like a puzzle I want to solve. As long as you have that curiosity and that willingness to learn, we can teach you cyber. It helps if you have a niche like manufacturing or healthcare, that you know something specifically. And there's a myriad of online courses and certifications and workshops that can help anybody, even if you don't have a technical background, you can get that knowledge and transition into cybersecurity roles. But I think it comes down to if you have the will, if you want to, and you're curious and you're willing to learn, we will find a place for you. So I found a trend since we've started doing these podcasts that the various women executives, as yourself, um, that we've discussed and had you know really good conversations with on, on the show, that they all had something in common. And maybe from the psychology degree, you can uh, <laughs> figure out what that is, but, or, or you can figure out why it is. But you're all trying to help other women to get into cybersecurity and to achieve uh, the executive level. And I find that really interesting. So you're the chair of the Siemens Mobility and Women's Empowerment Network. So what advice would you give to women who are seeking to enter into the area of cybersecurity? And what tips can you share as to how they can reach the executive level? I would say the number one piece of advice I can give is resilience. Believe in your unique perspective. This field thrives on diversity of thought. Surround yourself with mentors and always stay curious. As for reaching the technical, the executive level, it's about acquiring and merging that technical thought with strategic vision um, and having strong communication skills to help the business understand the implications of security. Think of any challenges that you encounter as stepping stones and learn how to advocate for your worth. Finding mentors helps, I would say. Uh, I would not be here without my mentors. Uh, one story I like to tell is I was, you know, a pretty happy working in the basement, writing code, um, breaking things, and with my purple hair. And I had a manager at the time who was the senior vice president of engineering. And we had our one-on-one. He said, what do you want to do? Like, what's your long-term vision? I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll lead a team. You know, I, I like teaching my skills to others. And he said, no, 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 no. I mean, long-term. So I said, I don't, I don't know, you know, um, maybe I can eventually one day run a department. He's like, you're thinking too small. I, I believe you could be my boss one day. I think you'd make an amazing CISO one day. And I said, like, I, can't, I can't talk to people like that. Like I was really very shy. And he said, that's okay. We can work on those skills. Um, and he definitely was a great mentor, actually, that I still talk to. Um, I've spoken to people that were in my role 
that are in similar roles and I got their advice. Uh, so the mentors, they can tell you honestly what your strengths and weaknesses are and guide you on that roadmap towards whatever vision you have for your life. And then find a company or a topic that you're passionate about and network within that organization. Uh, networking is really, really important. So if you engage with professional groups, attend conferences, uh, participate in webinars, you'll find that one, you probably know more than you think you do. And two, um, people will start to come to you with opportunities and ask you for your insight. You'll become a trusted partner. When I first started in tech, I was the only woman in my department and it was hostile and hard. And I would say that the kind of behaviors that uh, we saw then have no, are not accepted in the workplace now. And if you encounter those types of challenges, you have support systems that can help you uh, grow an organization in different ways. They can help you uh, protect you from that. So you look at challenges like stepping stones, but also understand that uh, you don't have to put up with that. And there are a lot of placements that will uh, embrace you and help you grow. Don't be afraid to voice your ideas or take the lead when the opportunity presents and you'll move forward. I can tell you I'm going to have my two daughters listen to this show. <laughs> Truly inspirational, Helen. So I, I must summarize, maybe David, you also have, have some finishing thoughts. But um, first of all, thank you, Helen. This has been uh, really, really inspiring. And I think uh, if I'm trying to summarize it on the spot, it's partly because I, I think you are passionate uh, about people as much as you are about cybersecurity. And, and it really comes across uh, in, in all of these answers you gave, and, and I found it refreshing and, and exciting. So, so thank you for the time and for the insights. Yeah, and I don't think it's because of your training in psychology. I think that's just the person who you are. And uh, maybe, maybe the training in psychology, you know, helped maybe to shape things or put things into structure. But uh, definitely, it seems like a winning combination, digital forensics, psychology, cybersecurity, and uh, you know, what can I say? Uh, keep saving the world and keep, you know, keep the product safe and keep the world safe. It's a wonderful thing. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for your time. Um, I do think that it's all of our responsibility to help move the line in product security, but to, to make the level of the industry better, right? We are ultimately a very small community. and if we rely on each other, if we share our skills, if we grow together, the industry is better for it. Thank you for your support and for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Helen, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.